Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. We've been warning you since December that the late fees and civil penalties are going to return to those unpaid toll bills. They have not been collected since June of 2021 because pandemic. And now Chris is here to tell you what happens if you don't take care of this in a timely fashion. And pandemic and the fact that they upgraded their entire website as well. So they were going through some growing pains there. But blowing off your unpaid tolls and the late fees and penalties could end with you not being able to register your car. You don't want to end up in that situation and you're running out of time to take care of this. The late fees and civil penalties return March 1st. The Toll Division's Jennifer Charlebois explains what happens if you blow this off. The next- next bill that they receive after March 1st will include a $5 late fee. If that bill remains unpaid, then the next bill they receive will include notices of civil penalty. Notices of civil penalty add up quickly. They're $40 per unpaid toll. Let's do some quick math. You've been commuting commuting twice a day on 520 and not paying your toll for each trip. That's 10 trips a week. That's $400 in civil penalties in just one week. Yikes. Now calculate those penalties and think of your commutes back to June of 2021. And you still owe the toll as well. Civil penalties are punitive. They'll get after you in a hurry. Notices of civil penalty remain unpaid. That's when we will place a hold with the Department of Licensing on the vehicle's registration. So you could see that you really don't want to end up in this situation for a variety of reasons. I mean, you could face thousands of dollars in penalties. You could get your um, failure to get your tabs. But, of course, there is a silver lining to this. Charlebois says you can get all those fees and penalties waived if you just reach out to the good-to-go system. We will go ahead and provide a one-time fee and penalty forgiveness for them. So all fees and penalties um, can be waived as long as the customer pays their tolls in full. Of course, you still have to pay your tolls. You're always on the hook for that. Uh, The civil penalties and fees, they can waive that one time. So look for any toll bills that you might have tossed aside. Check your good-to-go account and watch the mail in early March very closely. That next bill will outline where you are and what you owe. And Charlebois says you can even reach out for help after that. Even if customers somehow miss all of this conversation that we're having, if they don't get our bills, if they don't see the notifications, if they don't see the press release or the media and we get past March 1st and they get a bill with late fees or penalties, it is not too late. They can still call us and take advantage of that penalty forgiveness program. But of course, that requires you to actually check your mail and look for toll bills or go onto your good to go account and find out where you are. Now, of course, you should be expecting longer wait times at customer service as we get closer to the March 1st deadline. That's because a lot of people are going to be calling, trying to figure their way through this. So you got to be patient. By the way, here's another cheat code for lowering your bill. If you haven't signed up for good to go yet, you can do that and have your tolls lowered by a dollar seventy-five per unpaid toll. What? That kind of gives you the kind of the grandfathered in to getting that lower price for being in the go-to-go system. Remember, it's two dollars more if you can pay by mail. So if you're not set up for good to go and you've been paying, you know, those tolls include that pay by mail. You can get that waived down, save almost everything but a quarter off that increased fee uh, if you just sign up for good to go. So if you've been going by mail the whole time, if you sign up for good to go, you could save yourself almost. 
$2 on the toll amount. You're still going to owe the fees and the penalties unless you get that going. And just a reminder, the clock is ticking. Only got a couple of weeks left to take care of this. I don't want to see anybody getting jammed up on this uh, and find themselves well, $1,000 in the hawk in the hole. I mean, if, if, you, if you blow off all the, the notices and you're not listening to the radio, eventually you won't have a license plate. Is that what I mean? That, that eventually. Yeah. And again, I know a lot of people have not been renewing their tabs a lot through the pandemic and for other reasons, because uh, obviously, what are you going to do? You're going to go buy groceries uh, and put gas in your car before you do tabs. But still, if that's what you do, yeah, you won't be able to get them. It's got, I think it, you know, it's kind of like what they used to do in New York for all the parking tickets. They just boot you, uh, you know, <laughs> back in the day. They probably still do that. But yeah, you don't want to find yourself in this situation. You've got more information. I've got all the links at MyNorthwest.com for you to find your way through this uh, and get these things taken care of. To Olympia we go. And the latest discussion on homelessness, could it be the reason we are still seeing people living under highways because of something the state legislature has or has not done? Here's Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Dave. In fact, uh, we're actually going to move from Olympia over to King County this time because uh, I thought I found this interesting. You know, I'm one of those guys who listens to these long meetings so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to the implementation board meeting for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority late yesterday afternoon. And I was stunned about what I heard. So I'm going to focus on that because it does tie in with the legislature about the prevention. They're basically the fingers are being pointed to the legislator by the King County Regional Homelessness Authority CEO that's preventing them from moving people off the highway camp encampments and into shelters. And I can explain why. First off, when the people, when the public testimony was taken during this meeting, oh boy, people were so upset with the continuing of the uh, homeless camps along the highway, especially the one under the Ship Canal Bridge. People are just not happy. And here's what some of the neighbors are saying. You are failing at your job. You are failing me, my family, our neighbors, and you are failing the very people you are charged with helping. And this is another neighbor who has kids going to the John Stanford Elementary School, which is two blocks from this camp that just recently had another murder. I'm a taxpayer, and I'm not going to sit here and wait while a web of entities point me in all sorts of different directions, tell me we're working on a plan. And that's been a big uh, concern about the Regional Homelessness Authority is that it's a big bureaucracy. And basically what their job is, taking all the contracts, they're basically the uh, command and control center now for all, everything homelessness in King County, uh, including Seattle. And Mark Dones is the CEO of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority and spoke about the progress along those camps on the highway. In our state right-of-way initiative, we actually have brought uh, about 150 uh, couples and families uh, inside and have ongoing engagement with about 250 people across three prioritized sites. Those are some big numbers that actually conflict with the Department of Commerce, which exercises the contracts for the state's uh, sponsored removal of these camps. So basically, the state has appropriated $143 million across the country, uh, across the state to remove camps, $49 million dollars going specifically to King County. Well then this is this is what came up that's got me interested Dave is that it came up that 22% of the shelter beds in King County are going unused mm-hmm. and yet people are still on the highway. So former mayor Jim Chelmanak John asked Dones about it. The 22% are going unused. Is that am I correct in that? Uh you are correct. KCRHA cannot use those shelter beds to move people from 
these camps that into that type of housing. Yeah, the budget proviso is very specific that you have to be able to offer someone housing. Hmm. So the way the legislature wrote the mo- how the money's to be spent is that you move them off the camp and they have to go right into housing. They can't go into a temporary shelter or a tiny house village. They have to have go into some sort of permanent what's, housing. What's, what's the reason for that? That's just how they that's how they wrote it. And so what Dones is saying is real specific on how they can spend that forty nine million dollars when they move someone off a, a off a highway camp. Now, I, right after that answer there, there was a really long pause because people were stunned to hear that there were so many beds going unused. I went back and uh, checked the bed number. And right now, the what King County does is they merge uh, homeless shelter beds with permanent supportive housing beds. I mean, it's it's a big number, 14,000. So you think about 22% of 14,000, that's a lot of unused beds. So after this long pause, Chumanac seemed to be without words. Well... Um, the, uh, anyway, um, so really, at this point, it has to be housing before we're able to use that money to move people out of that camp. We need either an emergency housing or permanent housing option that we can provide. <laughs> That's absurd. It's, so so uh, there is plenty of space then to put people who have been living in camps. It's sheltered. There's it's heated. There are mattresses and it's empty is what you're telling me. Correct. And wow. that's what the implementation board was kind of sitting there. Well, who wrote that law? And why don't we ask them what they really meant by it? Well, this is going to go back to the governor's office in this one where in the Department of Commerce and how they're executing this money. And I think what uh, and this is just my feeling, having covered this subject for a long time, is that Seattle has become very nimble on how to handle these camps. They can move people out fairly quickly. They've been doing it for so long. And the and the state is late to the game and they're just kind of understanding how it works. And you just can't move people from right into from a tent direct into an apartment that's funded by the state. They're just not aren't there. Um, and then you have these tiny house villages, which have been uh, been successfully used as a transitional housing by the city of Seattle. So I think that's the rep. So what? So what? Basically, the implementation board told Dones is, hey, I think you need to go back to the state and see. If, and they're still in legislation session right now down in Olympia. Why don't you go down there and say, let's fix this? Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I mean, it should be pretty simple. What, what, do you know which committee handles this issue? Um, I do not know, but, you know, I think <laughs> this is a you'd have to redo a contract. Uh, I think this has to really go with the Department of Commerce and find a legislator that's going to sponsor this. And I mean, this just came up yesterday. Uh, the, the, the homeless, the uh, implementation board was kind of caught off guard by this, uh, thinking, So it just kind of knew. Chris has a perspective on this. Yeah, this is something we've talked about, Matt, a little bit is uh, with that right away uh, clearing uh, proposal that the governor put together that has, what, one hundred and thirty nine million dollars attached to it, something like that, where we've talked to the Department of Transportation and Commerce that they have to have permanent housing. 
and they have to go through all these hoops before they can actually move those people like out of the ship canal bridge camp that had that a fire again this morning uh they've been working on that one for eight months trying to get the people into housing but it's all tied up in this commerce commerce department issue which the governor put together with that right away issue that they've been uh, that you know last summer so there's a lot going on here that uh that seems like you know the bells and whistles and the hoops uh, they just can't get through, and it's and it's in its own way. It sounds like. Well, you, you heard Dones talk about we're working with 350 people. So right now they have 80 units that are designated that that the people from the highways that satisfy what the state's requirements are. There's only 80 in the county uh, that can meet the. Uh, so they're they're li- working with a very limited supply of the kind of housing that the state specifies that the people from the homeless camps on the highway can move into. And there's the, there's the rub. It's $49 million going to King County. We have 80 units so far, and you can't move them into the open shelter base. But just to be clear, I mean, we, you, we've been, we used shelters for years and closed them down during the pandemic, and I was wondering what happened to them, and apparently they're still there, and they're ready to go. But because of a few words on a piece of paper... The camps remain. So what what happened during the pandemic is you used to have the dorm style shelters. Yeah. Those are gone. They, they, so Why? everything. Right. So we're talking about hotels. People have individual rooms and there are 14,042 shelter beds and semi-permanent housing. They lump that number, those two housing units together. So we really don't know. I couldn't find the exact number of shelter beds available, but still 22 percent open. Wow. Matt Markovich. Matt, thank you. You're welcome. And your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. It's Girl Scout cookie season. My waistline knows that for certain. You may remember the viral tweet from 2021 about Girl Scout Troops 6000. The news shared in a tweet that's still true today. You can order Girl Scout cookies to support girls who are homeless in New York City. Girl Scouts Troop 6000 was specifically founded for girls in New York's shelter system. Founded in 2017 by Giselle Burgess, a single mother of five who had lost her home. She tells NBC News. I, I felt ashamed. I felt like I let them down which is why she wanted something for her kids to look forward to. Troop 6000 meets weekly in more than 20 shelters around five boroughs of New York. Well, shelter used to be just three hots and a cot, but now that we've got 70% of the shelter system is families, we have to help children not end up back in the shelter system when they become adults. Our mission is to create girls of courage, confidence, and character. In the six, the troop's name differentiates it from others in New York City's five boroughs, which are labeled with the thousands, two thousands, three thousands. So they're just called the six. If you see a girl with six thousand on, it just makes you like we've we've went through the same thing. As is the case with other scouting troops across the country, 100% of the proceeds from cookie sales and other fundraising efforts go toward the troops' badge activities, uniforms, and field trips. 748, and now from the G and Ursula show, it starts at 9 o'clock here on Current News Radio. Here's G. Scott. Good morning. Good morning. I was just reading Mike Sock's take on uh, the investigation into Russell Wilson's charities, and the crux of it is that uh, his... Uh, an investigation, I guess, by USA Today found that the amount of money that his charity spends on its staff and administration is far more than the money it gives out to the actual recipients. Right. So what's your take on it? Well, um, right now it comes out to where there's 36 cents uh, actually being spent on the actual cause, uh, 36 cents on the dollar. 
that is happening right now. And let, let's go back. This investigation started because they wanted to look at all of the NFL Man of the Year, the Walter Payton Man of the Year. Each year, the NFL has one person, one recipient that wins that. So all of the teams have a Man of the Year, and then at the end of the season, they pick one Man of the Year. Russell Wilson was one. J.J. Uh, Watt was one at one point. You know what I mean? So there's been 22, I believe, NFL Man of the Years. Now, um, my take is this. I don't know how and and what structure the Why Not You Foundation was. That's his charity. That's his charity. I don't know how that was doing. But I want to say this first. Russell Wilson did do an amazing job when it came to partnering with a third party. And in this case, it was Safeway Albertsons and it was also with Seattle Children's. He used his image and likeness and everything to help raise $10 million for pediatric cancer. Truth. Mm -hmm. That that, that is something that happened. Now, the majority of Russell Wilson's work has been through partnering with another organization. So that means that the best thing that should have been done, he should not have had the foundation— if he was just going to do the majority of his work that way, mm-hmm. because now everybody's looking at this part of it. I think the problem is, is that right now other people have been commenting. They have been reaching back out to the person that has been doing this investigation. And I think in this case, I think they use Russell Wilson as an example, because I don't think that Russell Wilson in his camp went ahead and and followed through to try to help give information back and forth. It's like sometimes like, hey, we want to get some information from you. We want to know about this. And if you sometimes if you don't comment back, they go along with the story. Mm-hmm. This Russell Wilson isn't going to be the only player that's going to be in this investigation. However, Russell Wilson is the example that is being set forth right now and is the first person that they have used. So it's a very unfortunate situation because I do believe that Russell Wilson has a good heart, but at the same time, Russell Wilson is the face of that, and that's no excuse. He is the face. Yeah. One bigger, one big problem, I've been in the philanthropy world for 10 years. As you know, I went to auctioneer school, and I have been seeing a lot when it comes to charities and nonprofits and all of those things. The big problem is this. A lot of these professional athletes, they go pro, they're in their 20s. They don't know a lot about these tax structures and these, uh, these, these nonprofits. They don't really understand. So they might partner with someone and they might say, Hey, help me out, get this built. And then they might trust other people to help them. But while they're the face, things might not be going that great. Right. And so that's the unfortunate part. I think after today, I think the NFL, the NFLPA, needs to make sure that each NFL team has one person that they have hired that will help them in the philanthropy world to go and make sure all of their I's are dotted and their T's are crossed. And this things like this won't happen. I believe that after today, Dave, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think what, I mean, in the few encounters I've had with rich people, once you've got the mansion and the boat and the staff, you still have a lot of money left over. 
you're looking at huge tax liability unless you find some nonprofit you can partner with to right. put your money in. And and so I think uh, sometimes you turn this over to somebody and you may not even know what's going on. Right. You know what I mean? And, and again, 36 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Now, if you did an investigation here locally, okay, here locally, mm-hmm. you will find that there's organizations that do less than that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But those organizations don't have the face that Russell right. Wilson has. So, look, I'll be honest. I'm not always the biggest Russell Wilson fan. But this is a time where I could say that I think, unfortunately, that this is happening. I don't think Russell was being malicious. Mm-hmm. I think Russell was being careless in trusting others to take care of those things. This doesn't give him an excuse because when you're the face, you have to be accountable. And so in order for this to get better, he himself is going to have to be the one, Dave, that comes out and says, hey, mistake made, which is what other people are doing right now that that's being investigated. They're coming out right now and saying, hey, you know what? I didn't know. I didn't understand. And sometimes you don't understand because you don't know sometimes what you don't know. G. Scott with Ursula, 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. Thanks, G. Right now, in Congress, Senator Maria Cantwell is leading a hearing into the disastrous December for thousands of Southwest Airlines passengers. Cairo News Radio Sam Campbell has been watching and he joins us live. Dave, over the holidays, Southwest canceled tens of thousands of flights and it had a snowball effect. A couple hundred turned into a couple thousand very quickly and it led ultimately to nearly 17,000 flights from December 21st to December 31st being totally nixed. Southwest initially blamed poor weather, but officials from the DOT quickly announced that they would be looking into it as they doubted weather was the sole reason behind this massive failure. There were other flights canceled, but Southwest was disproportionately scratching off their itineraries. Large amounts of passengers reported being totally left in the dark with little to no communication as the airline scrambled to fix the issues. Washington State Senator uh, Maria Cantwell issued a statement saying that she would be examining whether more consumer protections were needed. One woman from Seattle, Hope Grandin, was stranded with her boyfriend in Denver for four days and couldn't rebook on Christmas. Here's what she told Cantwell during a Zoom call call this week with impacted Washingtonians. We were told that there was no one left to work the desk and that we would need to leave the airport without a plan. We left on Christmas night with no rental cars available to us, no flights left in other airlines after we were assured our rebooked flight at 11.30 p.m. was worth waiting for and no option to reach our luggage. Grandin says she was told to wait around in Denver, received very little communication, and eventually decided to leave. But by that point, all the modes of transportation, planes, trains, rental cars were already taken up. She and her boyfriend got home to Seattle, but she says they didn't get their bags full of winter clothing and Christmas gifts for two weeks. And even now, there's dispute over reimbursement costs. We'd later learn it was actually partly due to a scheduling software failure. Pilots reportedly told CNN and other news agencies that the software was so old, it became somewhat of a running joke and that they'd pushed the company to replace it for years. So now Cantwell and her colleagues on the Senate Committee overseeing transportation are questioning Southwest leaders and others about what's being done to make sure this doesn't happening happen again. In her opening statement, she says she spoke with the coach of the Rainier Beach High School basketball team that was stuck in Las Vegas for days, paying thousands to feed and house the whole team in hotels. 
they were only able to come home because a local businessman offered to charter a bus. So then Cantwell directs a request at Southwest Chief Operating Officer. When I spoke to Coach Bethea and his wife recently, they wanted to ask one question. Mr. Watterson, they wanted me to ask you, and I know you're a busy guy, but what they really wanted was for you to call them. So she holds up a piece of paper, presumably with the coach's number on it, and asks Watterson to call them. Did he? We don't know. The, the hearing is still going on right now, Dave, so I don't think he's had time yet. <laughs> well, I've, I've, seen, um, I've seen senators do some wild things at these hearings, but this is the first time that, uh, that she, I've seen somebody ask a CEO to call somebody live during a congressional hearing. It was a first for wow. me as well, but she did speak with those, uh, those affected Washingtonians on a Zoom call earlier this week, and she seemed pretty affected by it. See, C-SPAN can be exciting. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Counties Radio, Sam Campbell. And somewhere within the sound of my voice, perhaps listening right now, is a person who has just become suddenly very, very rich. Because a winning Powerball ticket worth more than $750 million, if you take the payments over time, was purchased at a Fred Meyer in Auburn. And lottery can be a classic case of be careful what you wish for. You suddenly have an infinite amount of money, but you also have a whole range of new problems that come with that. So we thought we'd call in an expert. He's Kurt Panousis. He is an attorney based in Florida who has become one of the nation's go-to experts on lottery law. Uh, Kurt, good morning. And, uh, of course, the first question is, what's step one? And I'm, I'm guessing that step one is to call somebody like you. <laughs> well, good morning, and thank you for uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners as well. But, uh, yeah, I think that that's really – I think the most important thing for the winner is to keep the circle of people that know very, very small because that's really what's mm-hmm. going to give them the opportunity – to continue a life that will be close to as anonymity as, as possible, but just give them the privacy that they need. So, you know, bringing in an experienced attorney and or CPA, I think, is really the key. You know, I kind of I kind of um, view my role when I get involved as the quarterback because you know every team. You know, we're talking about Super Bowl time right now, and every team. You know, they get one opportunity possibly during their career to get to the Super Bowl. And when you get to that Super Bowl, the question really is, who do you want as your quarterback? Um, and no offense to uh, you all out there in, in Seattle. Geno Smith's done a great, a great job this last year. But, you know, do you want Tom Brady or do you want Geno Smith? <laughs> someone who's been to the Super Bowl versus someone that's not. So, you know, that's that's the key. I think that's one of the key things that the winner has to make a decision on. OK, so what's the biggest jackpot you've worked with? Um, well, it, it was number one at one time, and it, I think it got bumped down, but the $1.5 billion ticket um, uh, from 2016, and then uh, two years ago, 2021, a billion-dollar ticket out of Michigan. Um, and, and, you know, I've handled three, I think, of the top ten tickets so far uh, of winning tickets, and, and two of those states, they indicated that you could not claim it anonymously you could not claim it in a trust or llc and we were able to to claim it that way to keep the clients anonymous and again that all comes with experience and and what you uh and you have to work with the rules um 
you know, I went on online and checked the Washington Lottery's uh, website. It's a great website. Um, you know, whoever the winner is should look at it. There's a bunch of frequently asked questions at the bottom of the website and leads you to other questions and answers. Um, so there's a lot of information on on each uh, lottery's website, and the Washington Lottery website is, is one of the better ones. Okay, now here's what I want to know. Does it change people? You work with these people who become suddenly immensely rich. What happens to them? Is it good or is it well, bad? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it does change them. And, you know, what I've learned from being involved with some of these winners is you really have to try to stay with them and coach them through this process. It's more than just claiming a ticket. And, and that's what I've learned over the time is, is one of the first winners um, you know, I prepared the documents for their to cl- for them to claim. Uh, they came by my office, signed everything. I asked them if they wanted me to go with. They said, no, we got it from here. They went up with some friends in a party bus, um, claimed the ticket, went back down south, and uh, within like three months went through all their money for the first year. Back at that time, you had to take, you had to take the, the annuity. You couldn't take a lump sum. So since that time, I've really learned that I really can't let these people that win this ridiculous amount of money, just kind of do it on their own because they'll fall prey to to listening to people, to um, to trying to help out, trying to do more, spending, having fun. But it does change everyone. Like some of my wealthier uh, winners, you know, they'll they'll settle into buying a new condo where you know they can live comfortably and have a be- beautiful view of the sunset or sunrise. But then they decide to join a country club, which they've never done before. So then the question is, well, when you play golf, how much do I tip a, a caddy? Because I've never played in a country club where I had caddies before. So it takes a while. They don't know how much to tip a waiter at a fine restaurant when they order a steak with a $300 bottle of, of wine. They've never done that before. Kurt, so let, let me the, ask you this, just you know, it, just, from a practical purpose. I'm sitting on the ticket in my wallet. Right now, sure. I've got 90 days in the state of Washington to claim it. Do I immediately sign it? Do I unsign it, go get a safety deposit box, put it in a bank and lock it up and then go out and try to find my CPA? And my I mean, what do you what do you do sure. to prevent you from, you know, losing it, stealing it, putting in your laundry, you know, the things like that and to protect sure. yourself? I mean, is it right to the bank? Um, okay, so um, I'll go through those real quick for you. Number one, it's 60 days, not 90 days. You have 60 days to determine whether or not you want an annuity or the lump sum. If you don't claim it within the 60 days, you're, you're stuck with the annuity. Um, in most cases, the lump sum is so much better um, because you're, du- you're one and done. The problem with an annuity is, yes, you'll get an annuity that will increase 5% each year for the next 29 years, but you're going to be subject to the income taxes that will be assessed in those years. And if you go back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, our income tax rate for high earners was well over 70%. So 37% today is not that bad of a deal. So most people will take the lump sum and get a good investment person. Um, Second part of that is, from my perspective, I do not want the client to sign the ticket or market in any way. As, As a painter, I, if I have a plate, like a, a canvas that's totally empty and plain, I could paint whatever picture these people want. So, you know, I'll talk to the winner and say, okay, who's involved in the family? What, what are you thinking about? How do you see yourself a year from now? Who do you see you're, you're helping out? Maybe we need to include them 
with the winning ticket as part of the group. So, you know, dad might take 70% and give the other 30% to his three kids, 10% each. Well, you know, lump sum, that's $40 million to each of those kids. Um, and then dad doesn't have to gift it to them. So the 60-day decision is important. Um, do not mark the, the ticket or sign it for your own purposes to make sure that you can show that you were the possessor of it. You know, it's okay to take a good close-up picture of you holding the ticket with your face involved so you can read the numbers on the ticket and then, you know, hide that, that, that you know, that uh, picture somewhere. Um, but really just take a good picture of the front and back of the ticket so we can work off the numbers of it to prove to the Washington Lottery that you're the winner and put it in a safe deposit box. You're not going to need the ticket until the day of claim. So put it away in a safe place where no one can get to it and you can't lose it. And it won't be exposed to elements such as water or heat, which these tickets are so thin, you have to be very careful of. <laughs> and then that's when you sit down and say, okay, I've done those two things. Um, I'm going to hire an, an attorney to kind of run this whole thing for me. The attorney should be able to bring in a good quality CPA if they don't have the skills themselves. And then to put together a financial team, because um, generally when you win this kind of money, this is not when you want to go to your local credit union and open up an account. You need to get <laughs> private bankers, private bankers, let them help you through the process. And then you just work on putting together a plan. That plan will take about three weeks because you got to talk to the client a number of times. You got to talk to their spouse if they have one. You have to talk to, you know, what their plan is with their kids if they have any uh, brothers and sisters. Who do they want to include, not want to include? The attorney needs to look at the administrative code, which is there's a very important administrative code number 3-1506-120 out there in, in Washington that kind of sets forth what you can and can't do if it's a natural if it's a non-natural person winning this lottery. But you have several discussions. You put together the game plan. And then, you know, you try to keep the, the anonymity as best you can to give you peace of mind, um, you know, that, that going for the claim, that should be like going to Disney World for these people. You know, that should be a fun time. And, of course, I have a list of do's and don'ts for the claim day as well, but we can get into whenever you want. But, you know, basically, don't sign the ticket. Make a good copy. Show a picture of you holding the ticket. Put it in a safe place. Get a, get an attorney, um, put together a good team, someone you're comfortable with, a financial partner that you're comfortable with um, to help you with, you know, private bankers today, they're there to help you down the road. If you're traveling, they will make sure that you have an account someplace where you can get money whenever you need it. Um, You've you given know, away a lot people, of free advice here, and so I'm going to let people work on that. Don't sign the ticket. Okay. That's good advice. And uh, then then call Kurt Panousis in Florida. Thank you, Kurt. <laughs> Sounds good. 8.48, Seattle's morning news. And uh, what do we do about eggs? Eggs are too expensive. And so some people are thinking, well, heck, all it is is, you know, it comes out of a chicken, so let's buy some hens and make our own. Mickey Gomez is here. Are you, are you an expert on uh, on hen houses? Or? Well, you know, I grew up on a farm in Texas, mm-hmm. and I will tell you, my grandparents had a chicken coop, and it was pretty devastating when the coyotes would come and uh, the snakes would come. So uh, you can only imagine what we would wake up to sometimes. Even, and they can get in there. Oh, the so. chicken hawks. Cause my my uh, my mm-hmm. sister lives in upstate New York. And she's got a she's got like 140 acres in a chicken coop. And we were just we were just outside minding our own business, having lunch, and we see this thing dart through the air, 
dove into the chicken. It was a chicken hawk. Yeah. They're like dive They're bombers. Remember growing up watching cartoons, yeah. Froghorn, Leghorn? Yeah. And, and the, the little, little chicken yes, hawk that always tried to hawk. kick his butt? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question is, which shortage came first, the inflation chicken or the inflation <laughs> egg? And, you know, the jury's still out on that one. But with the rising cost of inflation and the cost of eggs and the fear of food shortages, the popularity of owning a chicken coop has skyrocketed, according to the Farmer's Almanac. So I wanted to look into this. And it looks like that this panic started about five years ago. And then, of course, the pandemic really increased the fear in people about how, you know, they were worried about the cost of food and they were worried about the cost of eggs. What we're finding is that chickens are selling out Mm -hmm. and so are eggs. Eggs are expensive. So I spoke to a chicken owner. She owns a chicken coop, Tiffany Reynolds. She lives on a half acre with her husband. And uh, she tells us that it can be pretty pricey uh, getting into the chicken business. You know, you go out to Tractor Supply, you buy a $500 coop, you get, you know, the feed. Um, I actually just picked up some more feed today. Um, you know, it costs anywhere between $20, $22 to like $30 for a 50-pound bag. So more than a carton of eggs. Tell us, what type of uh, chickens do you have? So I have the Bard Rock. I have a rooster and a hen. Um, and then I have two Buff Orpingtons, four Rhode Island Reds, and two Mystic Marins. Wow. Do your chickens lay eggs? Yeah, yeah, all pretty colors. Um, they're all within the shades of like, you know, large to extra large brown eggs. But yeah, they're they're very pretty um, and they taste really good. <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> How do you protect um, against bird flu? So we do have a covered run that has a tarp on it to help protect against those droppings because we do have a lot of birds. And what advice do you have for someone who's thinking about owning a chicken coop? I think if they are willing to be responsible, um, you know, and put in the time and the research because it is little lives and, you know, little mouths that you have to feed. You know, you, you have to remember that, you know, that you are, they, they don't just give us eggs, you know, for nothing. We do have to take care of them. Yeah. So Tiffany says that owning chickens isn't for the faint of heart. She says it's hard to go on vacation because you do have to find someone to care for them while you're gone. Uh, like we talked about earlier, they do attract predators yeah. like coyotes, wolves, snakes, chicken hawks. Um, she says on the plus, they do take good care of their chickens. She and her husband are able to give away the excess to friends and the community because they understand that some families don't make enough to afford eggs right now and that the food shortage concern is very real. I yes. think that uh, <laughs> I think it's easy just to pay five bucks for a dozen. I eggs. think it's a lot easier to pay five dollars <laughs> for a carton of eggs. Absolutely. But then there are some families that, you know, five dollars is too much for a carton of eggs. You know, they go through a carton in two days. Um, but if you are d- thinking about buying or creating a chicken coop of your own, um, make sure you check with your city uh, legally here in the city of Seattle. For example, they do allow eight domestic fowl. On any city lot, Uh, the city of Bellevue allows up to six and the unincorporated King County. The number depends on the size of the property. But man, talk about waking up. Think long and hard. (laughs) What was your job? What was your job on the farm? What was my job on the farm? I I collected the eggs. I collected the eggs. We had a pig. I had to feed the pig in the morning. And the the pig was my friend. Uh And and then the pig went missing one day. And my family didn't have the heart to tell me. But then one day my grandmother said... Um, Miha, go into the freezer, and she said it in Spanish, go in the freezer and get get me the bacon. And I opened up the big freezer, and then white packages of pork loin and pork chops. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, and I just... 
And, and didn't go that, on vacation? No, I, oh. I had signs in my in our community looking for my pig, thinking that oh somebody stole gosh. the pig or he ran away. But no. And so you came to the you only then came to the realization that yep. was your friend the pig. That that was my friend the pig. They finally told me, and I from that moment forward, I have not eaten a pig since. Um, wow. Yeah, but by the way, if you plan on selling your eggs, if you're like, hey, we're gonna do the new chicken coop thing because that's the hot thing to do. If you're gonna handle eggs, if you're gonna be an egg handler, yeah. you do need a dealer's license here in the state of. Washington, but if you just plan on giving out your eggs to like your community and your friends, mm-hmm. um, then you don't you don't need one. I'm just paying five bucks for my eggs. Okay, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. I'm Dave Ross, and I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM, or subscribe to this podcast, and you'll never miss the show.